All right, here we are, Munitions Podcast, back. We are back, folks. That means uh, Derek DeBross and I, Steve Palmer, we're here to talk about guns, legal guns, or legal issues with guns, policy issues with guns, fun issues with guns. I mean, what's not fun with guns? But uh, it's been a little bit of a break, but we are back. We got Derek zooming in. We are uh, remote, but uh, Derek, how are you doing today, man? Good. Thank you, everybody, for just being patient with us. I had to get a new. We moved offices, so we're up in uh, Dublin, Ohio, now in the Muirfield area. If anybody needs our address, it's now seven two four zero Muirfield Drive, Suite one six zero. That's four three zero one seven is now our zip code, and we have our own studio. So as Steve can see, we are not recording this by video today, but as Steve can see. It looks pretty good. It's coming along. Yeah, you got a little good setup over there. And obviously, I'm here at uh, Channel 511, my law firm upstairs, which is now, believe it or not, Palmer Legal Defense. And you can check that out at palmerlegaldefense.com if you happen to need some criminal legal help. I'm your guy. But uh, we're not here to talk about that boring stuff. I want to talk about guns. And uh, you know what's happened since we've been last on the air has been this Hunter Biden. I'm going to call it a debacle because it was, in fact, a debacle. But uh, you know, I don't. We don't have to delve into the. Uh, we don't have to plumb the depths, so to speak, of the political nonsense. But I, I, I thought it was interesting how they treated or didn't treat. Maybe is the better way to put it. The uh, the firearms portion of his prosecution. And Derek, you you and I both worked on gun cases many times, and I know you have as well individually. And uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting to me what Hunter Biden allegedly did with a gun, and how he got the gun, and how it maybe wasn't treated by the federal government. Um, I can give the facts if you don't remember, but uh, love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think we, let's, let's give the uh, audience, Steve, a little bit of context, because this is a really good topic and very uh, uh, apropos given the times, because um, I, I, you know, I was talking to some family and friends and they don't really understand what the heck's going on and why this deal was actually rejected. So I think there's a larger criminal issue here that you can touch on, but I absolutely can touch on the gun uh, issue. So why don't you give the audience a little bit of context of what the charges were? And I'll jump in with, you know, how the law works under the Gun Control Act, and then we can take it from there. Well, I mean, the, the, the quick summary is this. Hunter Biden procured a firearm, uh, so he bought a gun. And in order to do that, you got to fill out some paperwork. Anybody who's bought a gun understands uh, that you got to fill out some paperwork. And then later on, that gun ends up in, the, in a trash can near a school, sort of abandoned, um, when there was some other investigative stuff going on. Uh, and I guess that's sort of the backdrop. So, you know, I guess if I look at it this way, if I have a client who allegedly procured a firearm and filled out a background check and maybe didn't provide complete truthful information, Derek, I'll let you talk about that in a second. And then later that gun ends up by a school. I can tell you right now, I would be, the, the issue would not be whether my client would be charged. He would be if he were caught. And the issue would not be, you know, this is one of those where we'd be talking about a prison sentence, uh, certainly a conviction and likely a prison sentence, both in federal and state courts, I think. But uh, let's uh, Hunter seemed to have gotten a bit of a pass on all of that. And, and I think it's a good way to jump into what goes on with firearms law. Because, I mean, first, if you go into a gun store, say, or one of your local gun stores or even a big box store, uh, and anybody who's done that has either on a screen, on an iPad now most of the time, or uh, by paper has filled out some forms. Derek, what tell us? Talk to us about that form. Talk to us about that form, and how it, uh, what the law says about it. Well, first off, I was unaware that it was found near a school. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. How damn hypocritical! Yeah, ATF is always out there preaching about public safety, and this asshole's out there leaving a gun next to a school, and they barely even charge him. Yeah, that yeah. is complete and utter bullshit. I, I maybe I'm wrong oh about that, but God. I'm almost positive that's the uh, that's the fact. I, I guess we should get our facts straight. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I it, 
they, I think what happened is his uh, wife uh, or girl or fiance, whoever put put it in the trash can after getting it from him. So like uh, near a school though, so a kid could find school, it. Yeah. Oh, that, that's great. Well, anyways, here, all right. So the, the law under the Gun Control Act of 1968 lists nine different disabilities, as we call them under the law, uh, classifications, as I term them, that would uh, put somebody into a qualification category that would disallow them from possessing, not necessarily owning, but possessing constructive or actual. Uh, so actually touching the gun or having the power to touch the gun, essentially uh, a firearm or ammunition that includes ammunition, just so the audience is aware of that modern ammunition, at least. Uh, one of those that would apply to Hunter Biden is actually what we term the G. So it falls under 18 USC 922 subsection G. And it goes one through nine. And the one that would apply to him would be actually G3. And this is what it says. It shall be unlawful for any person who is an unlawful user of or addicted to any controlled substance, as that is defined under the Controlled Substances Act. Um, so this is really where from possessing firearms. So this is really where I think his charge stems from. My understanding is was he 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 wrote on the 4473, which is the ATF document that you fill out when you buy a gun, and asks you all those questions. Are you an illegal alien? Are you a fugitive from justice? Are you a felon, et cetera, et cetera? And it asks if you're an unlawful user of or addicted to any controlled substance. And now they even have a note that that includes medicinal marijuana because it's still legal at the federal level. Well, let me stop so, you there because how many people have filled out, like, you know, it, it, this this is somewhat subjective, I guess, in a, in a sense, right? Because if I fill out an application for a gun, and let's say I'm an alcoholic, but I don't really know it, or I'm still in sort of a, my own denial about the whole thing, and I just say, well, you know, I've never really been in trouble, and I've never really, I don't think I've got a problem. I I don't think I'm addicted. Um, how does that get judged? It seems like such a subjective sure. analysis. Sure. Yeah, and first off, alcohol doesn't apply, at least at the federal level. We can right, talk controlled about substance. Law. Right, fair enough. Okay. Right, right. Alcohol does, it, it comes in the analysis for state purposes in Ohio, but that's another discussion for another day because we're talking about Hunter and he's not in the great state of Ohio. Yeah, but I use cocaine all the time and I don't really think I'm addicted. Right. I just really, sure. really like it. Well how, well, how about this? You used cocaine regularly two years ago, then you got sober. Are you an unlawful user or addicted to? So the way the Code of Federal Regulations works and the Code of, or CFR, Code of Federal Regulations, kind of supplement or um, I guess assist, if you will, the, the actual law, right? It's how it's enforced by the agencies. So under the Code of Federal Regulations, they say, look, an unlawful user of a controlled substance is anybody who's convicted of any drug crime, essentially, within the last 12 months. If they have multiple drug convictions, we look back five years. And if there's any convictions within those five years, you can't own guns. So they look to drug convictions. Now, that's not uh, all-encompassing, right? They can look at other factors, Steve. So if they catch you on video smoking a joint with a gun in your hands, that's still a violation of the federal law. Um, now, you should know there is, I think, at least a district court, and it might have been in Oklahoma, don't quote me on that, that actually deemed this to be unconstitutional. Wholly agree with that. But nevertheless, if they're forcing this law against others, they need to enforce it against Hunter. Uh, our knowledge is, is that he was using, was it crack? Crack cocaine, I think. Don't quote me on that either. Well, I think he was like uh, sniffing coke off. Whatever the heck off, off of prostitutes. Off prostitutes' backsides, <laughs> maybe. I think, I think there is um, some of that going. I think, and there's video document, there's, there's evidence. Right. Right. And I think it's acknowledged by his dad that he had a drug problem. So the question becomes is at the time of his possession of that gun, when he applied to, to purchase a firearm under the Nix Act, when he filled out that 4473 and he answered no to that question, was he lying? And if he was lying, one, he committed a crime for lying. And then two, when he touched the gun, he was committing another crime. There's actually two crimes there. I guess that, the, you know, there's a history with Hunter 
where I know he's sort of been in and out of some rehab and he has been addicted to controlled substances and he has, uh, uh, you know, so it, there's a backdrop where if he's going to go get a gun and he answers no to that question, he's at least going to, at least it should have given him pause. So, I, you know, I can sort of accept that a lot of times the federal government might not charge this, this, this type of crime because it's going to be somewhat uh, subjective, like we were talking about. Sure. Somebody sure. doesn't have the backdrop or the uh, prior conviction or something, but here, uh, sometimes the tail wags a dog and how they discovered this is what is so egregious. And I think the gun was found in a dumpster near a school. And if you work backwards from there, it, it starts to get pretty egregious because you know, what's your experience, Derek on enforcement and DEA type of enforcement with uh, people caught with firearms near schools? I mean, I know what mine is, but you know, what, what's generally, how does the uh, ATF look at such things? Uh, it's a public safety issue that, that they always will preach that it's about public safety. So if you find a gun near a school and you're the culprit who left the gun there and you weren't supposed to have it, they would charge you for it. I, I don't think there'd be any questions asked. They're going to charge you for it. Is that that's um, irrespective of the forms and, and your answers to the questions, right? Sure. I think they would. If they have enough evidence to charge you, they'll charge you for it. It's a federal crime. Yeah. Especially in the school zone. And then, and then you have another one. If it was in the school zone, it's also legal to bring a gun in the, in the school zone under federal law. So yep. there's another potential crime there. Well, how about this though? It's a it's a, it's a curious analysis because I guess his girlfriend takes it from him and then throws it in a dumpster that happened to be near a school. So it can be sort of taken traced back to him. Um, there might be a proof problem as to whether he took it near a federal or near a school or not. But how would the law generally look at that? If the girlfriend had it, yeah, his fiance or whoever had it and and took it from him and put it in the school. So you know it's there because a hunter procured it somewhat unlawfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, she's like, you don't need this gun and takes it from him and, and throws it in a dumpster near school. And this is going back to 2018. But, um, you know, generally it's like this chain of command or chain of events, rather, that uh, sort of all goes back to Hunter Biden. Right. And this came out because of the laptop, I believe, if I remember correctly. But at the end of the day, look, I mean, when is the crime committed, right? The crime's committed when he possesses a gun because he's arguably an unlawful user of a controlled substance. Another crime's committed when he lies on the 4473. And then another crime's committed when that gun is taken into the school zone and abandoned. Yeah. So I can identify at least three off the top of my head. I'm not saying that he's liable for the school zone issue. You could argue that he was complicit in it maybe. Um, but at least the girlfriend, whoever was that dumped the gun, uh, was actually committing a crime. If it was in a school zone, which is a thousand foot perimeter around the school. Yeah. So what happens is, just to be clear here. Um, there is a, 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 an owner of a market sort of sees this happen and calls the police. Um, this happened in Delaware state or uh, the Delaware state police investigated. And I think what happens ultimately is somehow or another, the secret service gets involved and, you know, they sort of fix this and, and Hunter does not get charged back in 2018. And then, you know, everything, more stuff comes out when the, when they find the laptop and that that's a whole different sort of chain of events. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this they could have proven. You know, they could have proven it back then, and, and they opted to pass on the case. So that that's where I have some questions. Because generally speaking, I have found that when uh, people commit gun crimes, the, the, the politicians on one side of the aisle tend to want to prosecute those. And, uh, you know, this is one where it didn't get prosecuted. So, you know, you could say, I suppose, that it wasn't the strongest case uh, with respect to filling out the paperwork. But... Man, on the other hand, it sure looks like you got to pass. Yeah, I'm reading some of the uh, articles here. It looks like it was in a trash container across the street from a high school. So if it was in the thousand foot of that school, 
uh, facility itself, it would be fall within the uh, <laughs> within the uh, the law that President Clinton actually passed. Another Democrat, of course. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it uh, <laughs> it's just astounding to me that they just want to try and brush us under the rug and then they expect us to trust the FBI. Yeah, well, I trust him. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's sort of the first half of the Hunter Biden story. And then he gets into court and, you know, assuming the plea agreement would have would have gone through and it didn't. The judge didn't approve it. Not yet. Anyway, uh, there was a a diversion agreement of sorts to not prosecute on the gun. And right. I have never had a diversion in federal court. Uh, Neither have I. 30 years or so, 29, 28 years of practicing in and out of federal courts. Uh, I've never had diversion, and you know, generally speaking, I guess we should talk about what diversion. Well, well, let's means. back. I've never had a diversion, let alone a diversion on a gun case. On a gun case, where the right. president of the United States is anti-gun. That would have never happened to my clients in a million years. No, not not ever. And even no matter who's president, you know, generally here I practice law primarily, not primarily, a lot in Franklin County Court of Common Pleas, and there's always been a rule since I started practicing back in the '90s that you don't get diversion if a gun's involved, and you know. It, it, we should talk about what diversion is. Diversion is usually is this idea that you, you serve some sort of probationary period in advance. And if you complete that, you don't get prosecuted or the case goes away. Um, sometimes for diversion programs, you actually enter a plea of guilty in advance and complete the program. It gets dismissed. Other diversion programs, uh, you just complete like a, a good behavior period of time and uh, like probation and your case gets dismissed. So uh, usually the rule of thumb is on guns, no diversion. End of story done you know and that's that's what's so crazy about this is like it's it's sort of create it sort of makes no sense out of the shoots like uh wait a minute diversion on guns and and you know if you sort of scale that up to say not only that it's um you know the president's son who's been anti-gun and all this other stuff it again it just sort of stinks oh it just stinks the politics of high heaven steve and it just gets it gets me so infuriated but you know, what can we do other than just continue to do, represent our clients and do the best we can, of course. Well, and this, um, this is like bad facts make bad law and bad law and policies so, is what we're dealing with now. So now we've got precedent anyway. I'd be interested to hear your take on why or wh- what do you think about the judge killing the, the plea deal? If you could maybe elaborate on that. I know there's a lot of confusion out there on how the plea system works at the federal level. And why was this such a bizarre situation and why did the judge not accept it? Yeah. So generally speaking, plea agreements happen more often than not. And what I mean by more often than not is that most cases typically go away by plea. There's not a trial in most cases. So when people hire me to represent them uh, in connection with a, a crime they're charged with, you know, typically as a statistical matter, it won't go to trial. We'll resolve it through some sort of plea agreement. Some cases go to trial and we like to think that we uh, we do that when we need to. But uh, most cases plea. Now with that backdrop, in order to plea, it's like a contract and you have to put the contract terms in writing. In, in federal court, in most states court, in, in Ohio particularly, they call that Rule 11. Now, federal Rule 11 means that you have to spell out the terms and conditions of what the agreement is. So if the federal government is agreeing not to prosecute certain things in exchange for your plea of guilty to other things, that's typically spelled out in the Rule 11 negotiations. Um, and there are different sections under Rule 11, one that pertains more to immunity, the other is more of the the general agreement. But like, say I pled guilty and the government is agreeing to recommend a certain sentence, that would be in writing in the plea agreement. And then there's a, a bigger picture uh, delineation of plea agreements. I mean, some plea agreements are what we call binding, where we, uh, the government and I, or the government and your lawyer might uh, enter into an agreement and then present it to the court as a binding plea agreement, meaning if the court actually accepts it, it's binding. The, the, the judge won't have any discretion once he or she accepts it. 
then it becomes a binding plea agreement. Even on the judge, the judge could, of course, say, no, I'm not going to go along. And then other plea agreements are recommendations. So by and large, the government can't sentence a client. The judge does. So the government's going to agree to recommend a certain sentence. Um, But even, even in that scenario, the government still is obligated by contract terms if they're not going to prosecute based on cooperation or based on a plea to one thing and not another, uh, then that's a term and condition that gets enforced against the government if they back off and they and they don't comply or they don't uh, perform. So what happened here is the, the parties presented the plea agreement to the judge in writing and uh, and started to read through it. And I think in the meantime, there were some amicus briefs and other people were chiming in to sort of get the judge's ear on, hey, wait a minute, this thing sort of stinks. So the judge looked into it. And when the judge looked into it, here's what the, the, the obvious question was. It's like, wait a minute, this is a plea to, well, it's diversion on a gun case and then misdemeanor tax charges. And, you know, that that's a little fishy in and of itself because, you know, these were huge numbers of income that weren't reported, but they were misdemeanors. And the judge wanted to sort of probe into what did this cover because there's been a lot of press and a lot of speculation about uh, lobbying on behalf of foreign companies and whether if you don't do that, that's a felony. And in fact, it is. And, and it really wasn't charged much as a crime until the Trump era when certain people were. I think Montefort and some others might have been uh, charged with something like that. But so the judge is like, well, wait a minute. You know, what's your understanding, Hunter Biden, about whether you could be prosecuted by more things or additional charges as a result of this plea agreement? Because it doesn't say anything about that on the face of it. Well, you know, that you start to get, the, you can almost feel the, the heat lamp turned on because all the mm-hmm. lawyers are thinking, well, that's what we're trying to do here. But it doesn't say that in writing in the plea agreement. And, you know, Hunter Biden says, yes, I absolutely expect that I won't be prosecuted. His lawyers are saying, we expect I won't be prosecuted. And then when the judge probes into it, the sort of non-prosecution agreement is buried in a different document that spelled out the terms and conditions of the diversion. So the client, Hunter Biden, signed an agreement, um, or the, they, they outlined the terms of his diversion agreement, and Hunter signed that. And I think buried in some of the paragraphs there was this talk about if he completes diversion, they won't prosecute other offenses. Mm-hmm. And the judge is like, hold on a second. This is not complying with Rule 11F. This doesn't, uh, I'm not taking, there's not, I, this, this stinks. I'm not going to accept the plea. So the judge basically said, look, you folks, and, and even before this, this judge put everybody on the spot, said, all right, government, are you going to prosecute this gentleman? Is he still under investigation for more crimes? And the AUSA, the assistant United States attorney, is like, well, yes, he's still under investigation. And then the defense is like, wait a minute, we thought this covered everything. And the judge is saying, well, it's not spelled out in the plea agreement. Uh, so the judge basically blew up the plea and sent everybody back home. So now, you know, the, the judge put the government on the spot to basically say out loud, are you still investigating? Now, if the government says no to that, then the political backlash would be like, well, why the hell not? Um, if the government says yes to that, then Hunter Biden's going to say, then why in the hell am I pleading? Right. And <clears throat> that was the impasse that resulted. And I think, I think the judge gave him like 30 days or so. It was 30, yeah. Yeah, to sort of go back to the drawing board and come back and, and get their ducks in a row. So I'll be very interested to see how this happens because now, no matter what, what the AUSA, what the U.S. government does here, they're going to be on the spot. They're going to have to explain it. Now, if they're going to say, look, we're not going to prosecute these crimes uh, because he's pleading guilty to these other crimes, well, they're going to have to take the backlash for that. And if um, 
they are going to prosecute the crimes. I'll be curious to see how Hunter's lawyers handle it. So you said uh, you don't. The judge didn't believe it was in compliance with Rule 11F, correct? Uh, Rule 11. I, I said 11F because that's what it is oh, in Ohio. 11. But okay. under just generally the, gotcha. the provisions of Rule 11, which would say you have to spell out the terms and conditions of the mm. plea agreement in right, writing, right, right. Okay. and the judge has to approve that. And if the if it's not spelled out in writing, and other people have expectations beyond right. the written document, well, then you have to question: Well, is it a knowing, intelligent, and voluntary plea? And that's mm-hmm. like fancy lawyer talk to say, if you go plead guilty to something and there's an agreement, you have to understand it. Do you think that if they came to, do you think the prosecution intended to further investigate him or they were trying to save face? Well, I don't know. That's the million dollar question. It, it sure looks like they were, I, I think I, my gut tells me this. They were hoping to bury this in the, mm-hmm. in the depths of a, a diversion agreement and, and even just doing that, it's always the cover up that stinks. And that, that stinks put in terms of a plea agreement in a diversion agreement. That's not public, uh, really stinks. Um, so I think that they intended not to prosecute him for anything else. And then in the meantime, after he signed that deal, the world sort of blew up, you know, their hearing started, they started subpoenaing people into Congress. There are some whistleblowers that came forward saying that, uh, they were told to back off and not interview Hunter Biden and others, about uh, things because it might implicate his father, uh, our president. And, you know, then the AUSA, it would be a lot harder for the AUSA to say that out loud on the record, on, in, in literally with all national eyes on it, uh, that they're not going to prosecute Hunter. So they were sort of stuck. I mean, they're, what are they going to say? No, we're not going to, yeah. we're not investigating this because, you know, Merrick Garland has come out and said, well, I don't, you know, we haven't said anything of the sort. Uh, they've sort of explained that there's, there's still an open investigation, but all the while, Hunter and his lawyers think, no, it's over. And you can't tell me they didn't discuss that. They had to have discussed that. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, if he's got decent counsel anyways, what well, well, it's questionable. The guy was sighted smoking a bomb on the front porch. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, look, we've done anybody who's who's done this knows that it, when you go reach an agreement with the federal government, you want it to cover everything or it, it's explicit that it's not. So, right. You know, and I guess, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, a headline just came on. I just kind of pulled up the news here. Devin Archer interview, very productive in Biden family probe. So for those that you don't know, one of uh, Hunter Biden's business associates was uh, on Capitol Hill today um, giving some testimony in in front of the committees. And that was Devin Archer. And apparently he's disclosed some additional information. So it'll be interesting to see what that shows and what he knew. Yeah, and I think it's probably important to note some of the distinctions going on here. I mean, What's going on in Congress is not a criminal trial. It's just a hearing. Right. And, you know, so right. often these are just sort of show trials. You know, it's like they're just nothing ever really happens with this stuff. Right. But yeah. this is a sort of unique thing where that tail is wagging this dog. You know, it's like Congress is is exposing facts that everybody is going to say, why in the hell is Hunter Biden getting a deal if this is really going on? Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting to talk about. It's exhausting to think about it. It's just it seems very unfair seems like he's getting preferential treatment, but it is what it is. From the gun standpoint, I don't know that the government can approve their case. You know, it depends on the specific facts and what information they had in the investigation, which I'm still not clear on. You know, what evidence that they did they have that he was an unlawful user of and or addicted to? Uh, and honestly, I think that's unconstitutional, to be quite honest with you. If I was representing him, I'd attack the law. I'd say it's unconstitutional. It's overly broad. It's hard to enforce. It's ambiguously vague. Uh, you can even argue that it's just not in line with the Second Amendment under uh, the case law that's come out recently. Yeah, I, uh, under the Bruin case, I I agree with you. I would be pounding the tables in any instance 
any case I worked on making the same argument. But what stinks and what what so certainly I, I think both of us would advocate against this law because it is sort of vague, hard to enforce. Like when does somebody really think they're addicted? Sort of the things well, we talked about. And let's be honest, Steve. How many gun owners? Let's just be honest. How many gun owners out there using marijuana? But, but more than you can possibly. Yeah. More than can, we can count. Yeah. I guarantee yeah. it. Uh, especially you know in the veteran circles, which of which I am, I, I belong. That you know medicinal marijuana is very useful for PTSD, and of course they like their firearms. So, and you and I have both seen how many gun crimes charged at the state level where marijuana has been involved. It's more than I can count. Yeah, for sure. And but this is the problem. It's not that we agree with the law. We agree with the selective enforcement of the law. So sure. If I had a client, what, what's a, what is so maddening? is that if I had, like, you, whoever's listening, say this situation is you, and you come to my office, and I call up the assistant United States attorney and say, come on, man, this guy didn't know that his gun was going to end up in a school, and he didn't know that, uh, how are you going to prove that he was really addicted? And they're going to say, well, it doesn't matter. The law says we can do it, so we're just going to do it. You know, in other words, it, 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 this is not a normal break that you typically get. Typically, no. when a gun crime particularly one that is sort of exposed in media. You know, it's like typically the federal government, the prosecutors, those involved, law enforcement, they're not going to just back up and bury it. Um, you know, And I've you been, said it best, like you, in your entire career, you've never seen a federal diversion, nor have I. I had a case once where it was a Chinese national who just didn't know what he was doing was illegal. He was possessing a homemade suppressor. He just didn't know. Yeah. And even he got convicted and had to do one day in federal prison. I mean, look, it was, it was a minor... Um, uh, uh, sentence, but he's still a felon because of it, and and that is much more, in my opinion, uh, less harm to the public good than somebody with drugs buying guns, and he gets diversion? Come on. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you just gave me another thought, which is how often we, we see cases like this where the prosecutors are saying, well, look, we don't really care what happens to him. We just want to make sure he can never get another gun, because they've taken one more person who, who might buy one more gun off the street, and I, I see that all the time. It's like, they, they just want a conviction for something that would that would give a concrete exclusion the next time. And they didn't even get that here. You know, they, no. they, they didn't even, there's, there's not even like uh, something that would preclude Biden or Hunter Biden, at least on the face of it. Maybe, maybe you have a different comment from ever again, going and purchasing a gun saying five years, this is all done. He's sure. done his diversion. He's got a couple of misdemeanor tax problems on his record. That's not an exclusion. It's not unless the misdemeanor is punchable over two years in prison, which I don't believe it is at the federal level. No, not Most at all. certain it's not. Yeah. So, yeah, he would be able to, under those circumstances, be able to possess a gun again. So this guy who's a known uh, drug addict who doesn't seem to be in the public eye, really rehabilitated, in my opinion, is going to be allowed to go out and purchase a gun, a deadly weapon again. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And so if nothing else, they didn't do anything to ensure that it would never happen again. I mean, it's just it's totally contrary to what I experienced day in and day out in the justice system. Yeah, it's it is what it is. The, the law should apply to the king like it does to the people, but apparently it does not. So if you're connected, you're better off. Yeah, or you should just That's call the us. Rule we're teaching people. Yeah, or just call us. We'll, we'll you know we'll help. Yeah, you. we'll, help we'll you. do the best we can. Yeah. So what do we got in the ammo can today? Any questions? All right, looking through this, there's there's obviously look there's a bunch of different questions, and you can uh, we'll tell you in a minute how, or in a bit how you can uh, submit your question. But one of the most commonly asked questions I get not only in my practice upstairs, we get in the ammo can, and Derek, I'm sure you get is if I'm a felon, say, in Ohio, a felony of the fifth degree, um, am I ever allowed to, can I buy a gun? And if not, am I ever, is there anything that can I, I can do to eliminate that exclusion and uh, buy a gun in the future? Sure. 
And this goes along with what we were just talking about with Hunter Biden when you asked if, you know, because of the deal, would he ever possess a gun again? Uh, so actually, in, in some states, including Ohio, felons can't actually own guns. So the way the federal law works, if it's a felony, it's got to be punishable by greater than a year, misdemeanor greater than two years. In Ohio, the most a misdemeanor can ever be punishable by is exactly six months in jail. So that will never qualify even for the most heinous misdemeanor. But a felony, the fifth degree is only punishable by exactly 365 days. So it falls one day short. Now, you also have to look at state law, of course, and say, under the state law, can I own a gun? And in Ohio, a felony of the fifth degree can bring a disability, but it's got to be violent or drug related. So, for instance, an F5 theft, you could still own a gun under state and federal law. Uh, And then you have to do the analysis on concealed carry, which is a whole nother ballywick. And any felon in Ohio can't have a concealed carry license, nor carry a gun concealed under constitutional carry. So to answer the uh, the viewers, uh, listeners question, yes, there is limited circumstances where a felon can't own a gun. And if they can't, you have to go to the state or the jurisdiction where you were convicted to try and see if you can get your rights restored. And that's another discussion for another day. I'd be happy to touch, touch on that topic in another podcast in the future. Yeah, we'll hit that one maybe next time. But I wanted to add to this, that it, it's critical that you look at the law and the conviction in the state where it occurred. So in Ohio, we have felonies of the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth degree. I know other states that's like speaking Greek, you know, they have different, a whole different system. So what Derek is referencing here is the amount of time in prison or jail that the charge carried. So in Ohio, the felony of the fifth degree, say a theft offense, you can, the max possible time you could ever get in prison is 365 days, not a day more. And that is what the federal law is going to look at. So you you measure your uh, disability or pro- possible disability by by the amount of time that is possible, not necessarily by the level of felony that is the the felony of conviction. And so it's it's really critical to look at your individual state. And then it's also critical uh, if you if you missed it is that. Some you got to look at the state law on its own firearms exclusion. So it just so happens in Ohio, um, you'd be fine. In another state, you may not be fine, even with uh, a felony theft offense, if they've got their own laws and regulations that would preclude it. Is that fair? Yeah, that sounds exactly correct to me. All right, cool. So Derek, how do they how do they send you a question for now? And then obviously we've got other stuff in the works where we can open that up uh, broader. Sure. But uh, for now, how do yeah, we do it? Yeah, just munitionsgroup.com. There's a ask us a question. Just go ahead and shoot us a, a message and we'll make sure Steve gets it. We'll put it in the hopper and see if we can address it. And so the listeners know my YouTube channel is coming back. I, I apologize to my viewers uh, that listen and watch me on YouTube. I am getting that back up. We Again, we had to move and, and start a new studio. So I'm going to be starting a new series on YouTube, so stay tuned for that as well. Yeah, so with that, uh, we're going to wrap it up. You know how to get a hold of us and lots more to come. I promise we are back online. This is Munitions Podcast, and we are over and out. Until next time. God bless Pee Wee Herman.